Welcome to Startup Start Now podcast with your host, Sharina Shiv, a podcast aimed to showcase real and relatable entrepreneurs, side hustlers, and their mentors all living in the UK. Welcome to episode 31, everyone. I hope you guys are having an amazing week already. This week, I am joined with Pip Murray. She is the founder of Pip and Nut. So Pip and Nut are a nut butter or peanut butter (laughs) and is a big part of my life as I go on to say in the podcast. I personally have been using Pip and Nut for as long as I can remember and I have porridge every morning and a nice big dollop of peanut butter goes in that porridge along with some blueberries, bananas and chia seeds and it's just a really good, healthy, happy way to start the day and keep me fueled. So to actually meet the founder and the entrepreneur that sits behind the brand that I use so much was really incredible and just to have a very sort of deep conversation around branding, what it's like to be a female who's raising finance, um, everything through to kind of hiring and scaling this incredible business. And truly, Pip has been a food pioneer. I know I said that on last week's episode, but it's true. So they have gone on to win several awards, everything from London's most influential people through to Startup Entrepreneur of the Year. Pip and the business have also been on sort of the one to watch the Sunday Times Fast Track 100 list. And actually, we talk a lot about how, you know, in the earlier days, they were also really working towards becoming a sustainable business and what a B Corp certified business looks like. And I think you'll definitely get through this podcast episode how passionate Pip is about that. So enjoy the episode. As always, please leave a five star rating on Apple Podcasts, it really helps. And yeah. So welcome to Startup Start Now, Pip. How are you doing today? Yeah, really well, thank you. Yeah, delighted to be on the podcast. No, thank you for your time. I'm really looking forward to getting into loads. I've got so many questions. I want to know <laughs> sort of all about how it started, um, how you keep innovating. And also, I feel like you're such a, a trailblazer in sort of recreating brands. So I think we're going to have to talk a lot about kind of creating brands and marketing um, and all of that fun stuff. But I really wanted to start at the beginning of your journey. So could you share with the listeners um, where you grew up and what your schooling life was like? Yeah, so I grew up um, just outside London, sort of near Reading, and um, I grew up in a big family. So I've got three older sisters, um, and I think with that, just always a little bit of chaos in my household. But yeah, I, I guess from a kind of background perspective, you know, I don't think running a business was something as I was kind of going through school and even at university was really something that was ever really on my radar. My dad was a doctor who's now retired and my mum was a nurse. And like for me, I always kind of thought I'd go more down like kind of the charitable route. Kind of, I'm in fact the only person in my family that works in the private sector and works yeah. in business. So yeah, it's a funny one because I think it not been it's it's never been something that I thought would be my path. But I think growing up, I think particularly there are a few things that really impacted me and and probably did form a little bit of kind of guess personality that I have now and what perhaps drove me to entrepreneurship. But mm. I think one of those is is 
the fact that I'm dyslexic when I was uh, I think probably about six years old I got sort of they recognized it they spotted it and I kind of got um, Mm. diagnosed with dyslexia and it'd been and it's been something I think I've always um, not struggled with but had to sort of work with and I think naturally some of my first memories are actually getting like zero out of ten on spelling tests and being absolutely like gutted and so I think that sort of like constant need to kind of work really hard and Mm. having to work harder than perhaps some of my peers has been something that I think has instilled a kind of work ethic and perhaps a little bit of resilience which um, I think you fundamentally need when you're starting up a business I think that's it was has been quite formative but I think in the flip more positive side of it I've always led more to kind of the creative side of of my brain um mm. you know studied you know art at school and loved it and and really did well at it and naturally lent towards more of the kind of social sciences I've studied anthropology at university I mm. you know geography anthropology and geography and you know real curiosity in people and you know material culture which is a big part of anthropology so I think there is that kind of curiosity around kind of um understanding people better and 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 our role in society I guess and how society is formed so I think those have been quite formative and I think the second bit you know I mentioned big family dinner tables were always the focal point of our my, yeah. my childhood most of my memories link back <laughs> to some sort of food occasion and still do now they are like, <laughs> I love food it's been like a really big important part of my upbringing but I think particularly when I was about 12 my mum basically went back to work after um raising us when we were little and mm. she at that point said you know what I'm giving up cooking for the family I'm going to hand it over to you and your sisters and my dad and you all wow, get that's it. brave <laughs> <laughs> brave because I'd not really had much time in the kitchen but she gave us all a day a week and it was about the time when like Jamie Oliver was big on the naked on naked chef and I remember just getting really obsessed by cookbooks and we'd mm. create these really elaborate meals for my family and every week I'd come out with like I don't know tuna steaks and these kind of chocolate tarts all on like oh, a mon- wow. Monday night and I loved it and it just really kicked off I think a bit of an obsession around food and I think it stayed with me um in a kind of lower level for a lot of my kind of sort of teens and early 20s but I guess that's one of the reasons why I think I kind of always lent and kind of had a bit of curiosity to start a food brand because it's been something which you know I've, I'm really confident cook I love food love being in London and the kind of hotbed of markets that you have on your doorstep and I think it was just always something that I thought you know maybe actually there is something more than just having it as a hobby maybe there is a mm. something more professional that I could get into and that's what led me to where I am today I love that so it sounds like a really foodie family and it's good that your mom trusted you and your dad to yeah. you know get get stuck in at a young age greedy greedy is the word that springs to mind maybe not <laughs> as well as foodie I think we're just a very hungry bunch but yeah um, absolutely and just sort of going back to thank you for sharing um you know around dyslexia and did this was school quick at spotting that um and was there a lot of sort of assistance around there and then sort of my second question to that is have you obviously a lot uh, quite a few entrepreneurs have also come out and sort of shared their stories did you take comfort from that from a young age or yeah I think I was lucky because my two older sisters also have um, dyslexia. So I think they knew to spot it 
quite early um, because they'd, they'd already kind of diagnosed it in them. So I was able to kind of almost make sure that I think the thing with with these sorts of learning difficulties, like you, if you catch it early, you can create lots of different you can a get tutoring and things like that I was lucky enough to, that my parents could afford to to invest in that but also mm. then you could create I guess mechanisms to help and support you and hopefully you know um make it not really an issue and actually to be honest now I think perhaps if you read some of my emails you might spot it I do have a tendency to write I haven't noticed it <laughs> strange, strange backward words every so often but it's not really something that I feel has held me back and I think it's partly down to my family um, and my parents giving me a real confidence in myself and my ability and being able to obviously give me that extra um, tuition that is needed when you're trying to kind of make sure you do, you kind of override your natural tendencies when you're reading or writing but um, mm. but yeah I think actually funnily enough it is something I mean you know gosh I listen to loads of podcasts and have heard lots of people's stories with dyslexia and and I think it definitely um there was in kind of my later kind of teens, I think a, a much more kind of like prevalence and kind of openness to talking about dyslexia. I mean, the obvious one that was, that I remember hearing about, actually speaking of which, Jamie Oliver was one of them. He never actually wrote any of his cookbooks. Didn't know that. He, he used to record it on a, a you know, record it and then someone would write it, write it up. So he did write them, but he just, he spoke it. He didn't write it. Mm. And similarly, Richard Branson um, is a dyslexic. He's a very famous one, I guess. But That's the one I'm thinking of, yeah. Yeah, and I think it is reassuring, actually. It does definitely give you that kind of, like, it stops you thinking that it's a barrier. And in some ways, it makes you think maybe, actually, this is a good thing because it perhaps means that I've got a similar mm. trait and, and maybe it's that classic thing you can't be what you can't see. If you see other people who maybe have a disability or you know dyslexia that you, it makes you think you can overcome it and it's not going to be a barrier for you mm. and I think that's the case for a lot of kind of um anything when you're talking about kind of um you know gender Roll as models. well exactly yeah. that I think it's really important that as much as possible we see people that are like us doing things so that you you don't believe it's something that you you can't access mm. sounds like my dissertation <laughs> <laughs> So, Pip, you know, you went to uni, you're studying anthropology. What what do you end up doing next? I mean, I've got to say that that when you finish university, I was one of those people when you finish when I finished university, I really didn't have a clue. Um, didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and so it, it was a bit of a shock to the system. So I actually I started and I moved into kind of the creative arts. I was really interested in sort of museum and the museums and the art sector. So started working um, in various different art centres around London, sort of some of it was kind of um, production and kind of ended up as a assistant producer at the Science Museum a couple of years into running my, uh, a couple of years after university. So yeah, it was um, a really different move. Essentially, I was working on lots of different sort of children's theatre and then decided, I mean, my career wasn't very long. I I came up with the idea for Pippa Nutt about the age of 24 was the initial kind of um, spark of an idea and as soon as that got in my head um, I couldn't really push it out any longer so I had a, a couple of years just kind of meandering a bit but um, I think I always liked the idea of working for myself and I also liked the idea of not necessarily having to climb the ladder but just creating the opportunity for myself and and sometimes I think people that do climb the ladder in a from a career point of view 
they've actually got a harder job because they've got to really every stage they're pushing um Mm. whereas in some ways in my mind I actually thought it was an easier thing to do which would be to create my own thing and not have to um do that I guess no and so you're working at the science museum so are you did you at that point have the idea and did you start playing around with Pip and Nut at that point yeah so I I'd had a few kind of so I was dabbling a little bit I think as like little side hustles I had a blog at one a food blog at one point where I was writing up different recipes I um kind of did a, I was thinking a bit you know visiting markets maybe I'd want to have a food truck or something like that it was at the time when food trucks were getting really big mm-hmm. and curb in London were a really cool kind of food truck um business and but then yeah it was around that time when I was working at the science museum that I had the idea I was actually training for the Paris marathon at the time and um for me peanut butter has been a product that I've eaten as a consumer for years and years and years love the stuff and for me it was always something that was quite a like staple post pre-run kind of treat so I've always Mm. thought I always see it as a treat when I eat our products like I never think of it as like it being particularly um in a classic sense healthy even though it is and Mm. Um, so I guess I came at it from a consumer perspective I very much was a consumer but every single brand that I picked up at the time and I was first had the initial idea it had either palm oil in really highly processed and all the brands themselves were just incredibly kind of worthy the ones that were a bit healthier were a bit worthy weren't particularly like playing on flavor weren't really delivering that kind of lifestyle consumer brands and I and it it got under my skin as, as an idea and I think often when you have a often I think people forget that you can find small gaps in the market and you just really need to exploit those gaps and that's definitely what I saw was like a an opportunity to improve what was already a very on-trend category um but bring a brand that really resonated to me as a consumer someone that was younger more health conscious uh very foodie um and actually kind of yeah that was the kind of like the initial sort of spark of the idea and it kind of ruminated for a while, for a while until I actually started to take it a bit more seriously and think I might actually consider making this in a, uh, into a, a business um mm. so yeah that's that's kind of how it came about because sort of unconsciously before we spoke you know you're a big part of my life <laughs> every morning with my <laughs> porridge a Love scoop of peanut butter goes into <laughs> my porridge um and then to sort of you know see the the founder behind the brand is is always really interesting um and let's go back to say you know marathon training I agree you know but I've got London Marathon coming up and so how did you find doing marathon trainings any advice <laughs> oh gosh I always think the hardest thing about running a marathon is the training that you have to do like with six months beforehand because it's the repetitiveness and the kind of constant having to get yourself out and, you know, every morning, whatever, and go and do it. And as the long runs get longer, all I can say, and this is just my method, is have a plan. Because if you can mm. have a plan and you can get that satisfaction of like crossing things off, but and then visualize the end goal, like visualize that feeling of crossing the line or what you'll feel like when you're running mm. down, you know, some of the big streets in London and everyone's cheering you on like you're some sort of celebrity, like visualization I think is key and it's funny because a lot of like running a business I think can you can kind of relate to like the same kind of um 100% attitude that you need when you're running you know running a marathon I think there's real similarities between business and and that as a sport and and resilience is the main one like 
pushing past the the mile 19 parts always the the wall that you hit um and and having like a goal and visualizing is such a key thing I think in business and talking to yourself as well because your business starts and ends with you and you're a solo founder as well and then also on the run you are your only cheerleader yeah Uh, of course you've got people out there but in in the training in the run-up sorry back to the podcast now but I just wanted (laughs) (laughs) wanted to get your insights on that so you definitely talked about sort of the the other uh, ideas you're playing around with so take us through sort of from having the idea and you know and then implementing it what was the kind of first stages of now you're thinking right I'm going to go down the nut butter route yeah I think I think when you walk into a supermarket as a consumer, I think there's very, you, you really don't think about how is food actually made. And I think that's, that is the biggest challenge when it comes to a product based business is figuring out that supply t- chain and figuring out how do you actually scale something up? Because it's, there's so much mystique around it. And actually it's great. You have programs now on TV, um, you know, inside the factory, things like that give you a little bit more of an insight, I think. But for mm. me, it was a real kind of, it's very easy to kind of have the idea, but how do you scale it up? And I guess I started how I knew how, because I figured it's more important just to get going than to try and make this perfect. So I started literally in my kitchen in North London, bought loads of nuts, started recipe testing. Um, I always wanted to make uh, lots of different flavors and really kind of reignite uh, what was quite a traditional category with something a bit more exciting from a flavor perspective so I messed around in the kitchen for quite a long time and then and tried things out on my friends and family and then eventually started to I got a stool at um, or a stand at Maltby Street Market down in South London and I traded there at the weekends whilst I did my day job and I did that for about four months and that was just for me a chance to build my confidence, get my idea into something tangible and really see whether people would actually pay for a product that I was making. Now, of course, this wasn't a scaled up product. You know, I literally was making and hand labeling every single jar. Um, but it wow. really gave me like a sense of A, what resonated, what I needed to improve around the recipes, a real simple understanding of what this process was to make the product and um, yeah, I guess tested me in terms of do I really want to go headlong into this and invest more significantly in scaling it up. And I think after doing that, I just it gave me that buzz. Like I got some of the first kind of Instagrams from people. I got you know I had like that immediate feedback at market stalls. That was I sold out every week of all the products that I would make. Amazing. And it just was really brilliant way to kind of really dip your toe. Mm. and really I stopped once I did that for a while I knew that this wasn't the brand that I wanted to necessarily build I did always aspire to have a national brand when it came to this you know product I wanted to be able to have an impact nationally improve people's lives from a health and a perspective and, and from a planet perspective as well so I knew did I need I knew I needed to scale it up and that was I guess the next step was figuring out how do you create what is a brilliant product in your kitchen and translate that into a larger scale and I think that's that's one of the hardest bits. It took about eight months to find the right manufacturing partner that I could work with and really figure out how to make sure that the recipes worked. And I think finding a manufacturer is similar to finding investment. Like you're selling the dream constantly because you're trying to persuade someone who um, ideally wants to work with someone like Tesco, who's not a small, tiny little startup and who wants to bring a bit more complexity like you want to bring new flavors and recipes and things that are a bit more experimental which is ultimately a bit more challenging for a a manufacturing partner so 
yeah, selling the dream, going, turning up at random uh, industrial estates um, and seeing whether or not someone would, would work with me and got loads and loads of no's and eventually landed on a yes. And they were great. They were exactly the right kind of entrepreneurial kind of minded um, people in that team that I was working with at the factory and we developed the products on their site. And that was when I knew that I had a business that would and can actually scale and get out the door. And so then I started to invest in branding and raise some investment and actually started to think about that route to market and, and getting the products fundamentally made. And that was kind of, so I guess from the idea, the seed of the idea and actually having physical, you know, commercially viable products in my hand, it probably took about two years um, before right. they actually hit the shelves. And when you're going to a manufacturing plant and you've, you know, you, you know what you want to put in there, but is the, do you sort of have to suss out what customers and the, what demand you have before you go to the manufacturing and tell them that this is my, you know, minimum order, or is it the other way around where you already go to the factory, you get their buy-in and then you try and find the customers, what kind of comes first or do they go hand in hand? Yeah. It's always a bit of a chicken and egg, isn't it? Mm. Um, And to be honest, I think, well, firstly, yes, you do need to have an understanding of like what you might be doing from a volume perspective. Um, and no, more often than not, what you're wanting is your minimum orders are normally smaller than what they want your the minimum orders to be. So you, it's then just a negotiation. And often, and we get it even now when we launch new products, we have to kind of negotiate maybe lower minimum orders because you, you will take time to build that distribution up. So you have to kind of agree with them that you know it's going to be a staged approach over a year where you'll get to a, a run size that actually makes it um viable for them as much as it is for you so yeah it's a I think but that, that's where as well like I think when you meet a, a any partner that you're working with a manufacturing partner it's about looking someone in the whites of the eyes and 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 seeing whether or not you trust them mm. and I think more often than not, particularly at the early stage, it really is down to whether or not you get a really good feeling from the people that you're meeting. And if you ever get that kind of niggle in, your, in the bottom of your stomach about, oh, I'm not sure if this is right, you're probably bang on, it probably isn't. And I think mm. finding the people that are willing to back you in those early days and, and, like I said, be more flexible and sympathetic to the fact that you're a small business and a startup one that's not even got out the door. So you know, if they don't, if they're not flexible, if they can't empathize with the fact that you're trying to build a brand, which has to start from a very small place at the start, then they're probably not the right partners for you long term. And you might as well just try and, you know, find someone else that's a bit more suitable. So um, yeah, it's all a negotiation, everything's up, everything's to play for. Um, but fundamentally, it comes down to relationships as to whether they, they are the right people for you. Um, and you get a good feeling. Mm. so you've now got your manufacturer under your belt and you know when did you who was your first sort of supermarket or or store player that you worked with yeah we were I was lucky we won um Selfridges as our launch partner um wow. so they were the first first proper retailers to take our products and um they were great I mean Selfridges are renowned for being sort of trend spotters and um, you know, backing and working with small businesses to really kind of get them out the door. So they were great in terms of just profile for us and got some great PR off the back of it as well. And, and we really used that listing to then leapfrog into other customers. So and it's generally the way that you kind of build your distribution. You 
start small, but you use key key retailers like a Selfridges or a Whole Foods or a Planet Organic, and you use mm. those as case studies to then take to the Ocados or the Waitrose or the Sainsbury's, and you kind of build up from there. Really, you kind of always using smaller retailers to really prove that the brand resonates and works. And, and at the same time, you're kind of brand building. Like we spent at least the first sort of year as a business focusing on our core heartland, which was London premium independent gyms delis shops where we could really start to I guess use the distribution as marketing be seen where we want to be seen and therefore get into the hands of the people that perhaps might be those first thousand fans which um, are so valuable in the first year so um, choosing where you want to place your product and it's obviously not you have to pitch you have to win it but but choosing and being selective about where you list your business Mm. your products is really I think fundamental when you're trying to establish a brand and create um, a following and a kind of foundations that you can then lean on as you start to scale into larger, larger retailers. Mm. And have you had any sort of challenges in the, the large supermarkets? You know what? They, I haven't really. And I would say that we've scaled in quite a, we've been quite conscious in the way that we've scaled through different retailers. And I think, you know, Sainsbury's was our first supermarket that we won. Um, and we actually worked with them for, I think, around two years before we went and um, launched into another retailer. Um, wow. And actually, I think it's really important that you think really carefully about how quickly you expand. And obviously, the faster you expand, the more money you're going to need to kind of support and, yeah. and get the awareness up in store. But by spending time in terms of focusing on one retailer just really enabled us to um, drive our rate of sale as hard as we possibly could really raise awareness in Sainsbury's as a retailer and Mm. allowed us to kind of broaden our breadth of products on shelf as well as deepen our distribution within Sainsbury's so you are growing within that time but you're not necessarily spreading yourself too thinly across the total market and again once you've established yourself you can then start to invest and go um, into other retailers once you feel that you've got again a good solid foundation so but I think retailers I think you've got to always be conscious of the fact that when you launch into a retailer you've got about 12 weeks to really prove yourself that's generally the kind of time that they look at to see whether or not um, the performance is there and Mm. so that's why I mean don't rush it because you've got to make sure that you've got enough awareness of your brand and it's the classic Byron Sharp model. You need to have um, good uh, mental and physical availability. Um, so those two things, distribution and brand awareness, are the, the, the key things that you're constantly juggling and making sure that you obviously can drive enough awareness of your product in, you know, outside of the supermarket so that when it's on shelf, it gets pulled off the shelf. Um, but I think retailers, I think they're, you know, I think a lot of it lands on what the buyers are like um, mm. and, and how much they resonate with your product. And I think it's also important to try and build as big a network as you can within each of those retailers. Whilst the buyer is the absolute key person that you need to win over, if you can try and build a network of fans or, or people that you can speak to um, outside of just the buyer, then I think that also helps if you're starting to have any challenges or difficulties. It means you've just got a few more people to lean on and ask for advice um, Mm -hmm. would be my kind of other key thing. 
And I mean, you can't be there sort of updating the website and making sure the manufacturing is working and also, you know, business development, or, or maybe you were at all of those points. But when did you start knowing that actually now's the time to hire and starting to kind of decrease your workload a bit? Yeah, so I hired our first employee, a guy called Tom, um, um about a couple of months before the brand launched and his he was focused on sales and then I did the rest and that was most of the first year was me and him and another person in marketing sort of at a lower level and um to be honest I think those first couple of hires are so important because you need a real all-rounders people that have loads of energy and and the right kind of attitude in terms of belief and will just throw themselves into anything that you you throw at them Mm. and um yeah I I think it's important to obviously have sort of experience coming in at certain points and certainly after I think when we got our first retailer that's when I was like okay we need to get someone in operations to make sure that we can genuinely consistently supply Mm. so you start to cherry pick off areas where as you grow you think these are going to be more important I need to focus in on it but for the first year and a bit I'd say really having sort of um attitude over experience is probably more important and um because a lot of it in that first couple of years is just hard graft it's about Mm. doing samplings it's about doing events um being out on the streets selling trade shows it's it's is intellectual to some degree but to be honest a lot of it is just quite like um yeah it's like energy and doing and exactly sort of throwing yourself and waking up every morning and having to part because I have background in sales so it's definitely know, you know, yeah. just throwing yourself into it every day um and actually as you said like being really self-sufficient if you've had a bad last you know few days of sales it's again just kind of waking up and being like back to it <laughs> exactly yeah you need such resilience in those first couple of years yeah and sort of how big are the team now so we're seven years in now, so we contact. So we're about 25 people in the team. So built our business solely over the last sort of seven years. So now have like a structure of a senior team um, who kind of look after their areas, respective areas and the team that sits under them. Um, but it's still small enough that we still have a very tight knit kind of culture and, you know, um, very flat structure internally. So, which I love. And I think mm. we've, grown at a rate that's meant that we've been able to really retain that culture as we've grown it's not been so stratospheric that you suddenly lose control of it all we've actually um been able to a retain a lot of a, a number of the team who have been there since almost day one and also um grow in a way that hopefully means that those people that join really understand our our culture and our values Mm. And I know later on in uh, the podcast series, we've got Sophie and um, Ella from Griddle on the podcast. So they speak very highly of you and sort of the the work that you've done with them. Um, How sort of happy are you to then sort of see other brands sort of go on and and start and follow in your footsteps? I actually think it's one of the best kind of um, signs of success if people in your team go out and leave and start their own businesses um you know Ella is one of those she was a one of our marketing interns actually was one of our marketing execs and then left 
um, to pursue her, her dream, which is really exciting. And I've actually got someone in my marketing team who has got a side hustle developing her a business on the side, which, you know, in lots of ways, I hope that she goes and leaves so that she does that full time. And I, I think that's really cool to um, see other people's kind of entrepreneurial kind of businesses um, come out the back of, I guess, some of the learnings that they've had in, in our on, in our business. So, mm. yeah, I think it's super exciting and it kind of is, a, I guess, a longer legacy that you kind of leave with people, I guess, is um, hopefully a positive experience having started up there. They're, you know, worked in a startup and now starting up their own. Mm. I think that's so different to the culture in, you know, your traditional corporate culture where it's like, no, you can't do anything outside of your work job. And if you do, you need to let us know. And it's, you know, yeah. so kind of places that promote that healthy side hustles or just, you know, additional income streams is, is where people are now aspiring to work. Mm. And you're proudly certified B Corp. Um, so congratulations. How have you found that process? And, you know, I know sustainability is really at the core of the business. Why? <laughs> So we certified the vehicle in 2019. So we're recertifying again this year. So we're going through all the motions of um, getting that application together. I think for me, B Corp and why we decided to certify, because we were relatively early, one of the early businesses in, in the UK to actually certify as a B Corp. The reason why I wanted to, to invest in, in getting that certification is that I felt that it provided a framework where we as a business could think through and really think about what what we as a company wanted to be known for and ensure that we create a business right from the ground zero that is really thinking about people and planet and everything that we do. Mm. I guess from day one, um, sort of, we have been and, and are a kind of people and planet-led business. You know, we don't use palm oil in our products and we do that because it's better for you, you know, it's uh, filled with, you know, palm oil is not particularly good for you as an ingredient, but also from the planet, you know, it's one of the biggest forms of deforestation. So it's been a kind of like a thread that started right from the early gestation of the business. And I think now it's a really big part of how we um, are growing as a, as a business and sustainability. Um, we're working on lots of things from uh, net zero. So we've got our kind of pathway to net zero by 2040 uh, we're looking at becoming carbon neutral this year, reducing or, or removing all plastic from our range over the next three years. Um, we do a lot around um, sort of delivering products to food food banks. So over mm. 200,000 products will be de- delivered over the next three years. So big, big um, goals, which ultimately thread into our purpose, which is to help people really love food that loves them and the planet. And that really is what guides us so but ultimately I think what this all comes down to is that I think that business needs to play a bigger part in fixing and solving some of our macro global issues and, and problems climate mm. change being a massive one which every business needs to make sure that they're cleaning up after themselves and, and really making sure that we're protecting you know our, our planet and society for uh, the next generation and, and I think I actually find it really empowering that if you run a business, you have a really big platform to influence other people, but also to really change the way that business is and that capitalism doesn't need to just be, you know, growing at uh, and making profit um, by, you know, steamrolling over, you know, people or or the planet. Actually, you can Mm. grow in a really sustainable way that 
protects protects those two things so yeah I think it's actually really I find it hugely motivating that actually we're part of a movement of businesses that think totally different from businesses maybe that were um you know more traditional in the way that they approach kind of only creating shareholder value through Mm. profits um so yeah it's a it's a big thing for us Oh, that's fantastic. And obviously the, the Pip and Nut brand identity is so clear and anyone that sees that and I was in Boots yesterday and you've now lovely got the, the little chocolates and the sort of the grab and go snacks, which is fantastic. Sort of how do you go about sort of creating this amazing brand when you have such small sort of marketing budgets at the beginning? I think for me, um, it all, all comes down to like where you start and I think brand identity is so important to invest in that when you're launching the business we worked with an amazing agency when I was developing the brand who really understood what it was that I was trying to create and I think in doing so we've got this incredibly kind of strong identity logo that and personality that means that when you are investing any money in brand it's a lot easier because you're very distinctive and ultimately creating a brand is about creating a distinctive distinctive look and feel that creates that kind of moat around your business which is hard to kind of um infiltrate if you're from a from competitor's perspective and I think that as a starting point is is fundamental um so whilst branding can be I guess quite an expensive thing to invest in when you're starting up but I think if you get it right at the beginning it 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 saves you so much money later down the line where mm. you don't have to constantly refresh your packaging. Um, and, and even now, I think we really think about start investing as close to shelf as you possibly can. So the packaging is so integral, really looking at how do you create the most standout within your category so that if people have that two, three seconds at shelf, they, they see your product, they understand it, what it is that you're about. And then I guess the second to that, when you, when you really are on those tight budgets I think ultimately again having a really great product that people want to talk about word of mouth is the best form of marketing even now doesn't matter how big your budgets are if you can get people talking about your products recommending it to other people so again just never forget about actually what it is that you're here to do which is create incredibly delicious you know good for you products that make people feel good like that is your ultimate goal and so never never kind of lose sight of that when you're kind of thinking about how to kind of build your brand and I think word of mouth has benefited us um particularly when it comes to growing a social community we've got around 225,000 people across different social platforms that we have grown over the last seven years and having that community of fans that we can talk to has been an incredibly powerful thing when again we've got small budgets compared to competitors that we're working against so Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that story fundamentally is like the final piece of the puzzle when you're talking about how do you stretch a budget. PR is just so brilliant if you can really make sure that your story resonates. And I think that's one of the things which, um, from uh, from my from my experience, like you know, being a sole founder, being a female founder, and really kind of telling my story um, and my journey on growing this business has been a really great thing that we've been able to. Um, leverage but also I think more positively than that is that you again back to our earlier point hopefully encourage other people to start up as well so yeah PR has been a really important thread because it gives you national reach when you get some big bits of press um, mm-hmm. as well as also gives you an opportunity to really engage 
with telling your story to people, which again, if you can make people feel something, because that emotion is so important that you're wanting to connect to, um, again, you're more likely to kind of get those consumers to uh, pick you up off the shelf, hopefully. And this is something I really love about not just the brand, not just putting it in my porridge every morning, but actually being able to see the person behind the brand. Um, because again, that my dissertation is all about female founders mm. and definitely um you know even something is going to a bookshop to look for business books and seeing all the male founders on the front covers and it's not that females don't write books it's just the fact that perhaps their face isn't on the cover and it's on the back page um so again alluding back to the you can't be what you can't see um was that something that you sat there at the beginning and thought you know what well, actually I, I do want to tell the story and I do want people to know who Pip is um has that been conscious mm. that's a really good question um I think actually right at the start I used to feel really uncomfortable with the thought of me being with um too front and center I'm not an extrovert um or I kind of straddle I think some sometimes I am sometimes I'm not but I'm not someone that necessarily wants to send these the center of attention which is ironic since um I put my name front and center in the brands um and also yeah I just I guess I struggled with it initially but then I think it's I, I think we see it as a like you say people buy from people and um if you can put that independent heart at the at the real heart of your brand I think it's a really good thing so mm. we're now much more conscious I do try to make sure that um you know whether it's on our social or certainly through press that um that I am the face of this business because I think particularly when you start to scale when you start to reach more distribution we're in every single retailer now in the UK and actually we really want people to know that this is an independent brand we really care about our products we really care we taste every single batch of our products nothing gets out the door that I don't (laughs) think meets our standard I think really making sure you communicate that because it really is what sets you apart and it makes you distinctive. And that ultimately is like back to my point about creating a brand. You're trying to create a distinctive brand um, that really stands out from everything else um, that is desirable and that human connection is critical. Mm. And sorry to bring the tone down, but we know that obviously funding for female businesses um is shocking I think that's the only word we can use um as a female founder who has has taken investment can you talk us through how you found that process yeah I I I had I guess I don't fundraising is probably my least favorite part of running this business (laughs) for whatever reason some people love doing it I love working in this business and creating products and and focusing on the brand. So I guess I always get a bit, it's not my favorite part because it does take you away from the day-to-day so much. You have to be out on the road speaking to lots of people, selling the dream and and the the vision of where you want to take the brand. Um, I've done lots of different funding or different types of funding over the years. Started the business on um, crowdfunding. Actually, Funnily enough, when I was crowdfunding, which was a pre-revenue round, so before I launched the business into Selfridges, uh, did a crowdfund on Crowdcube. I actually only went to that because I struggled so much to get funding um, through angel investment, through individuals, that eventually I gave up and thought, actually, I'll just go to the crowds. I think it might be faster. Yeah. And I, I guess for me, I don't really know whether or not that was because it was because I was female or was it because of the product or was it because of the brand or was it 
maybe just that I just didn't have any experience. It might have been a mixture of all of those things that hadn't proven the business enough. But mm. um, crowdfunding was my first step and actually was a great kind of way to get money in fast, pull in investment from lots of different places, friends, family, and people I'd met, um, and but not pin it all on one or two people and have that mm. pressure that you had to kind of um, deliver just for those, you know, small kind of uh, group of shareholders. It actually was quite... Um, kind of took the pressure off having a larger shareholder base in that first instance um, but then have since kind of raised money through angel investment bringing on experienced um, individuals in the, who have experience in the food and drink sector again really beneficial and then have more recently done a venture capital round which was our first kind of round of institutional money that we took on so to raise around um sort of nearly four million for the business over the last seven years and I congratulations yeah, yeah it's it's been a journey but I don't think I think um I've been lucky that because business has been successful we've always raised at relatively good times so we've always had a good story to tell to investors so that mm. then means it's it sort of open stores but um and it, I guess that statistics around you know um I think every pound in 100 gets gets, um, gets invested in female-led businesses. I believe it's a stat. Well, we all need to fact-check me on that one. Um, uh, yeah, so the the latest, I think it's uh, three pence in a pound. Oh, gets, so, and, yeah, okay. Yeah, three three pence in a pound uh, for, for female, all females, as it's 10 pence for mixed founders, male and female. But uh, it's actually going down, which That's, is... That is that is depressing, and and I think part of it links maybe to the fact that um, there are less female-led businesses actually out, so perhaps they're just not literally able there to invest in. But yeah. what I would say is a challenge is that more often than not, you the people that are investing are are men, and I think naturally people want to put money into businesses or or maybe connect with founders that um, you know are of the same sex as them, and maybe um, they can connect and you know, there's, they trust maybe that, that, that those funds are going to be used in the right way. So I think that doesn't help that more often than not, it's um, not a mix of um, genders sort of investing or who you're talking to. But look, you've done it. You've done it. So you've gone out and got that investment. So it can be done, which is, is the success story. Um, and I just wondered, you know, what kind of UK entrepreneurs are you admiring at the moment? Yeah, I... I think I look very much in the B Corp space because I think um, they're the sorts of businesses that I I kind of hope and aspire to. Um, one of my kind of favourite businesses that I um, and I know the the founder well uh, is a guy is um, Cook and he's a guy called Ed Perry and he runs a brilliant kind of frozen food um, business and they're brilliant because I think they really embody people and planet in everything they do they their kitchens where they make all their products um they have a scheme where they get ex um convicts who work in the kitchens to then again rehabilitate them in in society and then give them jobs and and then they go off and continue on their careers and I find that hugely inspiring that they actually really embed in just how they do their how their business runs that kind of people and planet um I think they're really inspiring um and then I guess of outside of um food and drink all birds is a business that i look at a lot i think again i love the way that they communicate a lot of their sustainability messaging you know the fact that even on their trainers they have their co2 emissions of of how much 
CO2 is used to create those trainers and their kind of provenance stories around their materials I find really inspiring and I think actually a lot of like where I get draw inspiration from is in that fashion world I think there's some brilliant brands I think brands like Everlane or Organic Basics who really think through how they provide that transparency to consumers on their supply chain and mm. and really make sure by by being that transparent it means that they it holds them accountable to working with the right kind of partners um and and really again engages consumers more in what it is that they're buying so yeah those are I guess businesses that I hope we as a company begin to level up with when it comes to how we evolve our kind of environmental um uh, goals that we're we're working on it internally as well mm. and last week's podcast guests were hunter and gather jeff and amy um, and i saw that they won a competition with you uh, a little while ago so i can see that you've been a, a mentor and um, who mentors you so i've been really lucky to have um a guy called giles brook come in he was actually was one of my mentor right at the start and then invested um slightly later down the line and he used to run um and he's still involved in vitacoco for europe middle east and wow. africa and he was a founding partner in bear nibbles which is a food brand in the uk um so he has been hugely influential basically taught me everything i know about you know, running a business in food and drink and the commercials and how to talk to retailers. Um, and it's someone that I tend to have on the end of, you know, WhatsApp. Um, I message him all the time with little questions <laughs> here, here, there and everywhere. And he's been great for that kind of um, constant kind of coaching, but also someone to lean on, particularly when the time, time gets tough. And I think for me, the true test of a great mentor is someone that, A, never tells you what to do, just offers advice and challenges your thinking. And B, never loses it or um, gets frustrated when when maybe something hits the fan. He has always been incredibly supportive when I come to him with something where something hasn't gone to plan. And um, he's very always very calm and often, more often than not has a story that's even worse than the one that I'm telling him, <laughs> which always makes me feel better. So I, I respect him for that because I think that is not an easy thing to do, especially when you're invested in something to, to be as supportive as he has been. That's incredible. And so what's next for Pippa Nart? Where, where do we go from here? <laughs> well, gosh, it's, it is really busy at the moment for us. Uh, I think you probably got it by the end of this podcast, but we're really focused on um, sustainability. So we've got a lot of work that we're doing. And I think the thing is with, when it comes to really improving your environmental impact as a business it just fundamentally takes time and you have to do it in a way that is uh being mindful not to greenwash and so we're trying to learn as much as we possibly can and and not kind of um rush and and but at the same time have some urgency because the climate crisis is already upon us um but then second to that i guess we're looking at how we expand our brand so obviously we're famous for our nut butters and we've broadened out into kind of confectionery and i guess we're looking at but how else we can make sure that as a business we can uh, meet different kind of consumer needs over um, people's days through different products that we can launch. So big focus on innovation. And I guess finally international, we're focused in UK and Ireland at the moment. You can't really find us many other places around the world. So we're really thinking about what's that next big market that we might want to jump into over the next few years. Um, again, 
international it's a really tricky thing to land well and um, make sure that it gets the level of focus in the business so we're trying to make sure again we create good foundations wherever it is that we end up um, going so yeah those are the three big to-dos on my pad at the moment I love that that's that's huge Um, and yeah congratulations I know you recently did the collaboration with the Crosstown and you're sort of always Mm. innovating Um, so what advice would you give your younger self after all of our discussion today (laughs) is there anything yeah I think for me I would I guess I'd be telling the, the the woman that who was 24 when I was starting out the business to make sure to enjoy the journey and and document it and make sure you capture those memories it's really and I I think that perhaps is a slightly annoying piece of advice because I know how hard it is in the first couple of years you know you are it is hard graph and there's a lot of you know fear about failing um but I think remembering that this is a fun an amazing experience that you go on and especially those first few years where everything is so new like you know, enjoy it because I think you can you can sometimes put too much pressure. Well, I certainly put too much pressure on myself and um, didn't really live in the moment enough. Um, so I think that that might be the advice I'd give myself. And the question that I want like to ask all of the guests on the podcast as a final question is, what do you want to be remembered for? And I ask that because we have chosen a slightly different course of life um, and not gone on the conventional route. So. I feel that we're all doing this for a reason. So, you know, Pip, what do you want to be remembered for? I want to ensure that I'm remembered for, I guess, challenging the status quo around business. Um, Ultimately, I want Pip and Nut to be, you know, a beacon brand um, for sustainability, uh, for really... Um, being a responsible business um, so I think for me that's 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 the thing that I want to be able to look back on and see Pippa Nut still continuing to kind of be a pioneer when it comes to um, doing the right thing by people and planet so yeah that that really is what what drives me I think um, long term. Amazing thank you so much for your time thank you for being a part of my life every day unbeknowingly <laughs> um, and I can't wait to see what you guys go on to do so thank you for your time thank you so much thank you so much for listening to today's episode I think you can tell how <laughs> excited I was about this podcast not only did it was it recorded this week it's also put out on the Sunday and it was just one that I wanted you guys to hear straight away and I think definitely my excitement comes through that um I told you from the start that this season was going to be foodie guess what we are back again with another food entrepreneur next week thank you so much for listening as always I I am so lucky to have the opportunity to speak to incredible people and the only reason I'm lucky to do that is because you guys choose to listen and so I will see you next week with another entrepreneur have an amazing week